0: Hello, everyone. My name is Joanne Lockwood, and I am your host for the Inclusion Bites podcast. In this series, I have interviewed a number of amazing people and simply had the conversation around the subject of inclusion, belonging, and generally making the world a better place for everyone to thrive. If you'd like to join me in the future, then please do drop me a line to joe.lockwood at seechangehappen.co.uk. That's S double E, changehappen.co.uk. You can catch up with all of the previous shows. On iTunes, Spotify, and the usual places. So plug in your headphones, grab a decaf, and let's get going. Today is episode fifty-nine with the title "Dare to Be You," and I have the absolute honour and privilege to welcome Shelley Bridgman. Shelley describes herself as a performance coach, psychotherapist, and workshop facilitator. When I asked Shelley to describe her superpower, she said that she is very good at being with people who are struggling or in deep pain and helping them chart a way forward. Hello, Shelley. Welcome to the show. Hello, Joanne. Really
1: good to be here with you
0: today. So, Shelley, Dare to be You, what Mm. does that mean?
1: Well, uh, apart from the fact it's uh, a title of a podcast that I'm launching, I think that, that whenever I've done any work as a therapist or coach, it always seems to me that what we're really doing is uncovering ourselves and who we really are, you know being our authentic selves. It's one of those glib expressions that people use, you know be authentic, and it's very hard sometimes for people to sort of peel off the layers of protection and actually be themselves. you know sometimes it takes depending on your circumstance it takes quite a lot of courage. I would say probably for most people it does. But until we do that, we're never really being fully ourselves and really using the gifts that we've got. So that was the thinking behind it. And when I and when you mentioned my superpower, <laughs> I was waiting to have to put the T-shirt on with an S on it or something. But I think for me, uh, well, where I started out, I suppose, was um, I was a Samaritan volunteer back in the day. Long, long time ago now. And... Um, it was my sort of first introduction to working with people who were in a bad place, and I learned at doing that how to just be with somebody who was really struggling. And I think I then evolved to a place where I wanted to be a bit more proactive and to do things to help people move forward. But in essence, the the job stays the same. You know, when you first meet somebody, if they're in a bad, you know, you have very different conversation with somebody if they're standing on a bridge ready to jump off than if you do when you're across a desk and they're telling you that they're feeling depressed or suicidal. Now if you think about it you um, you you wouldn't speak to them in the same way. So I suppose it was just over a period of time and training and everything I was just learning how to really do that and I think I've evolved now into a place where I'm able to be with somebody. Who's in that low spot without panicking and without trying to fix them quickly? The first thing people need to do is to know they're being listened to, and there's somebody who actually cares a fig about what happens to them. That's the start, really. So that would be my short answer yeah. into that.
0: I mean, I, I, there's an expression I, I heard some time ago that uh, everything you've ever desired is on the other side of fear. And that really resonated me with me because I realised that fear is what holds us back: fear of humiliation, fear of rejection, mm. fear of just being seen. Sometimes, and, and mm. when you rea- when you actually take that step, you think you're going to step off a cliff, but really it's just an inch, and you just and you yeah. just carry on walking. And the, 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 the reality of fear is it's often in your own mind, isn't it? Well, it's an interesting one because.
1: I don't I don't disagree with anything you've said other than saying that I don't like the expression that, you know, that people use the acronym false evidence appearing real. Yeah. But there's something disempowering about that because it sort of implies we well, you're stupid to feel it. You shouldn't be feeling it. And fear is real. How we respond to it, of course, is a choice. And um, if you're an existentialist, you'll believe that ultimately all fear is the fear of death. But I always think fear comes down to two basic fears, really, fear of failure and fear of rejection. And depending on your upbringing and your experiences, you'll have a a sort of leaning towards one or other of those. So although we can argue that it's not rational and largely it's not, you know, like you just said, fear of standing up saying something, well, no one's likely to shoot you. But at the same time, it feels a bit like it, or it can do, and for members of society who are constantly feeling battered and attacked, of course they're you know they get they get resilient and a bit reserved, so they they're very wary about opening up but i I think the the job of mine actually, whether I'm a psychotherapist or a coach, is to help people have a strategy to overcome that fear so to say look i I get it. I get why you're feeling it. But actually, these are the things that you could maybe do. How do you feel about that? You know, could try A, we can try B. And because um, I think, you know, people always say we're always fearful of not being enough. And I think that's an oversimplification because there are some people, especially people who come from minorities, where their big fear is not so much that they're enough, but that they're almost too much, you know. There's no space for me in the world. I'm too difficult for people, which is a very different fear. And, um, you know, people from minority groups, be it, you know, your, your whole thing is about diversity and inclusion. So many of the people you will speak to or attract will feel in a minority, whether it's disability, sexuality, gender, whatever it is. So I think it's not always about feeling enough. You know, it is that sometimes it's about, you know, that trope of, um, if you really know me, you might not like me. You know, you're saying that you like me. If you really get to know me, will you? Because my experience is when people do, they don't. You know, that might be playing out in their subconscious. So,
0: yeah. So yeah, fear, I, is I the big, I, fear
1: is the biggie, but yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. I think I, I lived a life for much of my life. Involved alcohol, because mm. I, 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 and I wouldn't ever say alcohol was a coping mechanism. It became a habit. It became I became a person with it, mm. and without it, I maybe didn't like myself enough, or I was I found myself yeah. not enjoying what I was doing. Where alcohol made it yeah. more enjoyable or something. Well, it, really uh, was it took a long time to realise that if I took alcohol away, I could then make better choices about whether I really wanted to do something or not. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I always remember the legendary rock drummer Ginger Baker, you know, who died a year or two ago, didn't he, sadly, from cream. And uh, I remember him saying, because he tried just about every substance known to mankind, I think, and he, um, he said, i suddenly realised one day that I could still play the drums if I wasn't high. I didn't even need a drink. So he kind of worked himself into an assumption that without substances and let's face it works a substance you know people work all the time as a deflection it numbs the pain you know I was good at drinking um, and it just numbed my mind if I was um, if I'd had a lot to drink then I wasn't with myself I could just get through but of course you learn that there's a quite a high cost to pay when you do that because you're not actually being yourself. And, of course, ultimately, it's going to damage your body. But I don't want to get all preachy about that. We all do things <laughs> to our bodies that we shouldn't. But, um, yeah, so we all find a way of numbing the yeah. pain. And what you've highlighted is that we've all got a fear of something, whether it's acceptance, rejection, whatever it might be. And we find very creative ways to avoid the pain without really facing it. And I think my job when I'm working with people is to say, look, we, you, you can face this. I'll do it with you for a while, and you won't be consumed by it. You will come through it. You just need to take that first step. Yeah,
0: yeah, you're so right. It's it is that mm. that first step is is often the challenge, isn't it? Because yeah. even well, the first challenge is identifying there is a step to take, and then once you've identified the step, is is having the the courage or the support to take it and yeah, I, mean, I remember my own my own gender transition five six years ago. That massive first conversation,
1: yeah,
0: was enormous. It was the biggest thing in my life. It was what do
1: yeah. I? Because you can't you did, take it yeah. back.
0: Sometimes these things are binary. Once you've said something, you can't unsay it, can you? No, and you didn't know for sure what the reaction would be.
1: So it was a, it was stepping off the cliff in a way because mm. you kind of probably thought well, the people you first told you probably wouldn't have told them had you thought they were going to be very negative. But you didn't actually know until you did it. So it's that first step forward. And um, we could go into all sorts of cliches here, couldn't we? Like a journey of a thousand miles starts with a step and all that stuff. We all know that. But to actually do it is not quite the same as reading it in a book. And um, my experience is that when you... Funny enough, I was talking about this at the weekend at a conference. My experience is that when you step out, good people join you. When you're trying to do something, amazing people will show up, but they won't show up until you take that step. Mm. And that's the scary bit,
0: and that's really another cliché yeah. is you know you know who your true friends are in your moment of need, yeah. and you you step out into the light. You 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 take your covers off if you like, and the people that run away probably weren't your friends that they weren't the people you were looking for everybody else and
1: i would hazard a guess because i don't know you well enough but i would hazard a guess that some of the ones you thought would be difficult weren't and vice versa one or two of the ones you thought would be okay perhaps weren't you know because you never quite know what's going on with people do you until you actually you know confront them with something like that you take a guess yeah
0: yeah completely there was a, a friend i had from school uh, I think we probably met at the age of ten or something like that. Um, and I thought we were kind of good enough friends and he effectively walked away, just yeah. um, said through other people that he'd he he does not want to get involved with me, doesn't wanna know me, doesn't want to talk about it, just yeah. goodbye. And it's like, Oh, well, not even talk to me, not even not even go yeah, yeah. I don't get it, but you're still still you. It was just no, didn't want to do yeah, And I found country, that really strange.
1: It wasn't my closest friend. But said through his wife, "I'd like, I'd rather think of him as being dead." Mm. And um, so I, rep- I, rep- I came back with something unrepeatable, um, <laughs> and then said, "You know, I'm very much alive." But um, but then there were other people who I thought, "Oh God, I'm going to be dead." Who, who weren't, you know, mm. my my um, my experiences. People who are secure in themselves don't have a problem with most things. It's the people who are insecure have the problem because they don't want anyone to think, oh, why are you a bit different? So they give a lot away. You know, they say more about themselves than they would have done about you. You
0: hmm. know,
1: the Ones that walked away like that tell you far more, don't they, about their insecurity.
0: Yeah, and I, I, I often say to people... Thank you for telling me. I, I don't have to guess what you're thinking. You're telling me. And we, yeah. it's fine. I don't need to worry about you. It's it's quite right. empowering knowing what people think.
1: It's quite interesting because I'd made an assumption. I'd have, my oldest friend, probably, we were at school together from the age of nine or ten and um, lives in America now. And we'd, we'd lost touch. And um, I knew they would have heard that I had changed gender at some point. And I tried to contact them once and I didn't get a response. So I thought, obviously, they got a bit of a problem. I let it go. And literally, 35 years on, I suddenly got an email. And to cut a long story short, what had happened? They hadn't seen my communication and they'd been afraid to contact me because they didn't know what to say. So I'd caused us to be like two bookends. So it was actually my my fault, really, because if I'd been braver, and persisted, I would have found out that actually they wanted to stay in touch. Yeah. And, and I'll be going and having a holiday subject to world restrictions in America in in the next few months to stay with them. But, um, yeah, so I could have lost a good friend if had I, mm. you know, had he not sort of um, – overcome his kind of nervousness. He was just afraid to say the wrong thing in case he upset me. And there was me thinking the reverse.
0: This goes to show. It's interesting when you say that. I've it, You've just reminded me of, about how I prejudged my father. Um, I've, I've not had a good relationship with my father for many years. It's kind of been a bit arm's length. Right. Uh, Christmas and birthdays, polite conversation. So he's also quite in his senior years i think he's 89 this year and uh he's uh he's quite deaf hardly hears um so i ended up writing him a letter just telling him about who I, me and what i was doing and and he wrote me back a letter um saying don't be hasty we can fix this which i i took as a kind of a an old school rejection type thing. And then I slept, rather than reply to that, I slept on it for a year and a half. Right. And I didn't speak to him. And I wrote to him again and said, look, it, it would sad of me if we never spoke again. Um, I, I don't want us to never speak again. It would, it would be a saddest thing in my life if if, if this stayed between us. And I I've, yeah. I just want to, to meet you and talk to you and, and say hi. Yeah. And so he, he, he came around and he wasn't particularly good with my pronouns and particularly good with my name. But I thought, well, to be fair, in scale of things, that doesn't matter. Actually, I I, I want to have a, a a a last period of life relationship with my father, and uh, he came around two weeks ago, and he used my he used my name correctly every time, uh, avoided pronouns mostly. I think he probably used mm. my name when he needed to, and I thought, wow, that's fantastic. And I missed. I think I misjudged him. I think I I assumed that he he wouldn't love me. I assumed he would reject mm. me. And I've, yeah, I, I'm completely surprised. And, and a lot of that was in my head because yeah. I thought I knew him and I didn't.
1: But you see, what you've highlighted is the fact that, you know, we all have an element of fear and reticence to mm. overcome. And um, and the problem with, um, I have this all the time when I'm with clients, is I always say, look, you can love your parents, you can hate them, but the one thing you cannot do is be indifferent. Because you're conning mm. yourself, you know they they matter. You might you might not like them, and you have every right not to if they've been nasty. But just to pretend to yourself they were no consequence whatsoever, personally, I think is a bit of a delusion because, you know, there is a connection, yeah. and um, it might be difficult, but you can't really ignore it. Or if you do, you do it at your peril.
0: Um, but there we go. It actually and, inspired me to think about him differently, and actually yeah. think more more warmly about him. We, we we had a difficult relationship in my teens. I I was I was not easy. I had a lot of things going on in my head. I yeah. I want maybe I was disappointing for him at that time. Um, but I remember him in a different light. But having met him again recently,
1: mm.
0: and he whatever whatever preconceived whatever historical views he's had of of trans people he he's still my dad and he still acts like my dad and he still supports me so and, and he'll
1: always be your dad and you could yeah. have slammed the door and closed it forever couldn't
0: you but you didn't yeah i could have and that would have, yeah. i now realize would have been a that, that would have been me doing that yeah. not him and,
1: and would have been very sad and and it's um, it's quite interesting because um, I had a difficult relationship with my father, but when he was um, he was almost ninety eight when he died. My dad, so he lived a a good long life, and he was telling me because he's he, he got he had dementia near the end, but as I jokingly put, and I I wouldn't want to diminish the impact of dementia, but he literally forgot he didn't like me, and we had some really interesting conversations. And he was telling me about, and he was, he was born in, what, 1906. So he was a little boy when the First World War was going on. And like all families, in North London, and like all families, of or well, most families of that generation, they were quite big. And he, he told me the story when he was about um 12 years old of a telegram boy arriving, going into the house, and his mum coming out, saying, go and find your dad and tell him that Billy's been killed in France. And so this was my dad's brother. He died in the trenches. And um, and my father didn't, they, they, he didn't have any shoes. They, um, they literally were very poverty stricken. And he ran the length of the Holloway Road in North London. So if any Londoners know that part, now It's a long road to find his uh, dad on the Essex Road. It was laying cobbles. And the reply was, tell, tell your mum I try and get off early. And he wasn't being callous. He knew if he packed up and went home, he didn't get any money. Couldn't feed the kids. There was no welfare state. And when I heard that, my heart softened a bit because I sort of thought, yeah, I I cannot know what a tough time it was for him as a child. So he grew up with a very hard skin. So having somebody like me as a child wasn't easy for him. I'm not condoning what he did, because he was quite difficult. I just saw a different side to him when I heard that story. Hmm. And there's always two sides to every attitude. And um, there's a difference between condoning bad behaviour and trying to seek out what makes someone tick, what makes them the way they are. You know, you, you know it's no yeah, use murdering somebody, but no. for all we know, no. that person had a wretched life and was severely hurt by the person they've killed you know who are we to judge <clears throat> never, never condone a murder but you never know what's going on behind the eyes we've gone into a deep place joanne with that we
0: have gone into a deep place yeah <laughs> it's, it's, I, i'm just looking at uh some of your bio that you wrote earlier one thing to say is you passionately believe that every human being has genius within them
1: yeah, and they should be free correct.
0: to ex- express their gifts for who they are, and that's a kind yeah. of a core, a, yeah, a fundamental human right, really, isn't it? So, Absolutely. why is it so difficult sometimes for people to to, ex- to be accepted sometimes in society?
1: Well, and I and I think we collude with it. Some of us who, you know, are in a minority, we buy into the trope that it's a tough fight, and we kind of shrink back a bit, and um, and it's like it's understandable. But I genuinely believe that, you know, and I've met, I've worked with young people who had severe problems in one way or another, physical, mental, both. And it was good at something, you know. I mean, I was, like uh, Oscar Wilde's one of my favourite writers. Uh, the world's full of endless Oscar quotes. But, you know, his very famous one, of course, was, you have to be yourself because everyone else is taken or something. But,
0: um,
1: mm. um, but he meant it, I think, at... Uh, quite a profound level, and we're all good. we are all good at something um and um we we've all got a unique contribution to make and um, God, the world needs it you know um mm. and and nations are the same um, look what's going on in the world, so we can't change the world ourselves, we can change our little bit of it, get it wrong, get yeah. up again, and be the best we can be and you know look. I'm a coach and I'm a psychotherapist. Are there other psychotherapists and coach? Yes. Are they better than me? A lot of them probably are. They don't do it the way I do it and I don't do it the way they do it. And I'll hit the spot with some clients, not with others. And they will do the same. So there's no league table about whether you're the best this or the best that. It's just got to be the best you can be. And, um, mm. and there's no, you know, we're not going to get measured against somebody else. It's not, it's not the Premier League where somebody wins it and somebody gets relegated. Um, and interestingly, the best coaches, you know, sports coaches, are the ones that obsess about being the best you can be, not about winning, which sounds a yes. bit counter, counterintuitive. But the, the great ones are the ones that get the best out of people. Mm. Know, and, and the trophies come along anyway as a
0: by-product. Well, I'm experiencing that. I, I have a personal trainer. Um, he, he he gives me a uh, a good workout twice a week,
1: right. and
0: he is 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 pushing me to my limit, not pushing me to his limit. Yeah. He, he will. I will get well done and fantastics when I'm going when I'm being the best I can be, and yeah. and that's that's the power of a really good trainer and coach. Absolutely, It's to take me to my edge, not yeah. beyond my edge, and then yeah. I. I really respect that, so I'm always a bit giving what I can give to the max. Yeah, and the chances are if you're in a sports field, for example,
1: you will win things anyway, you know, Mm. but, um, you know, for every uh, gold medalist, there are a lot of good people that are excellent at what they do, and, um, I mean, it must be wonderful to win an Olympic medal, but if you Mm. come second, does it mean you're rubbish? Well, I suppose it would in some parts of the world or in some people's eyes. Mm. But actually, if you'd come from... I always remember being very inspired and really showing my age now. But I remember, uh, I probably i probably read about it, just to wiggle out of that one. But in the 60 Olympics, there was a, an American sprinter called Wilma Rudolph. And if you Google her, she was amazing. I think she was in a wheelchair until she was nine or ten or something and won a gold medal in a sprint, you know. I mean, that's what you call doing something amazing. The fact that Mm. she could even run the race and get in the team was an achievement, and then she goes on and wins it. I mean, that's just phenomenal to be able to do that. I mean, that's inspiring. Mm. But when you're in
0: that situation... You don't set out to be inspiring or brave or, or a role model. You, you're just doing what you do, aren't you? And I, yeah, and she probably—I don't know
1: her well enough. Well, I don't know her at all. But my guess is she was just determined to be the best she could be, and she wouldn't want to. She didn't want to be defined by the fact that mm. she had. I think she had polio or something, and she didn't want to be defined by it. Now, sometimes it would be physically impossible because you can't change it, and we do at least have para Olympics now but mm. in her case she actually managed to overcome it totally but that doesn't mean somebody who can't is deficient because there must be a point where you, your way beyond mindset you just can't do it you know if your body is restricted because of a disability you can't change that with a, a, a different attitude gets back to the fear thing is fear real or not well it is real doesn't mean you have to be defeated by it but to tell somebody you're imagining beings fearful just would disempower them because they think, "Oh my God, what the hell's wrong with me?" Whereas somebody like mm. her, I'm talking about, her now, hundred years later, you know, because it's just such an amazing story. So um so y- yeah,
0: y- you, without giving any secrets away, you you you've gender transitioned at some point a while ago, didn't you? And you, you yes, married after, at the time. just after the Boer War.
1: <laughs> it yes. Was... <laughs> well, it was in the
0: 1980s. I am not to out you as a trans person, but I'm outing you as an older person now. Well, I think I did earlier. <laughs> I've outed myself as an older person
1: anyway, because although my father was in his 40s when he had me, if you do the maths, you can tell I'm not 35 anymore. But, um, yeah, yeah it, was, it was in the 1980s. And, um, yeah, it was a different world then
0: but it's what it was. I mean, now, I mean, I mean, I, I, I transitioned six years ago. So I transitioned in, mm. in the, in the, well, 20, 2010 20, to 2020 20 decade. Yeah. Um, and I've, I've grown up in a world where I transitioned, where I was on the up curve, trans inclusion, trans acceptance. The, yeah. The society was becoming positive, which gave me the courage and confidence to say, it will be okay, which is completely different to where we are today. But when you when you were exploring your identity, yeah, it was kind. Of, it was still in the trans people are weird. Trans people are kind of yeah. outliers. They're kind of there was yeah, little yeah. knowledge, but they're almost like you were almost ignored to a point. Were you?
1: Well, it was interesting. I I was, um, i was speaking at speaking conference and shared this. Uh, I had a, a my own business at the time. And one of my clients said to me, look, you know, we really like you. And we've done some great work, but we can't have our brand associated with somebody like you. It would be bad for us. I mean, now they'd be saying, where's the where's the diversity box? Let me tick it. <laughs> mm. And then he said, so we think it's time for a change. I thought, oh, the irony. <laughs> <You> know, so, <laughs> so uh, yeah, but but, you know, I think – I'm a great believer that everything's different at different times. I don't think it's better or worse. I think in some ways now, you know, and one of the reasons I'm passionate about supporting young people. It's kind of hard for them now because the world's telling them that they're deluded or they're not right. When I did it, you were weird and you, you know, so you could fight back or not. So in some ways it's a lot better. But in other ways, I think there's still a lot of work to do. Um, you know, for people's very there's existence gets challenged. And the media can be very hostile and it's very toxic. Yeah. Um, so, in, so, you know, so it may have been harder in some respects in my era. But then I think today's got its own different challenges. I don't think it's, it's easier or harder than it was. It's different.
0: Yeah, the stories in the papers in your area era, and uh, somebody who may know Jackie Gavin when she transitioned, there was lots of shock horror front page of the Sun expose type stuff, Mm. and it was like storming a teacup. Move on, okay, maybe not in your life, in 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 their life, yeah. But now it's like it's barrage, uh, sustained attacks uh, day in day out, yeah, almost like trying to erase trans people from society yeah, I think completely
1: it's the, um, what, what do they call it is it gaslighting it's this thing about you don't really exist you're crazy go and get yourself fixed you know yeah. that's the trope isn't it at the moment and i work with young people all the time who um who you know are in a bad place because of that you know because mm. they're made to well not made to but they feel inferior so my job is to help them to understand actually look you can choose how you respond to this you don't have to be defined by that it's not easy but we can empower people and you don't have to put oh, up with you know what people are telling you what's important to you you know my life is about the work that i do um you know i i am um, if i i don't know about legacies but i've got two amazing grandchildren i mean that's the coolest thing ever Got a mm. grandson and a granddaughter. I mean, how blessed am I? They're amazing, and my my two daughters are fantastic human beings. You know, so I can focus on that, or I can pick up the the daily fail or whatever the paper of the day is that has some derogatory headline, and I can read that and take it in. Well, I can choose not to. So, um, but you know, it's not easy for everybody else, and that's why. That's why we have to sort of help empower people and and show them that there's a choice and that they can be different. Mm. And help people explore it as well. So they're not absolutely sure that they're doing the right thing. Not so many years that having a a sexuality that wasn't heterosexual was illegal for God's sake. Mm. Not just frowned upon, but actually breaking the law. I mean we're only going back forty or fifty years for that. I mean, I mean, we ah, think then, of it now. To,
0: 28.
1: Oh, well, you we're know, we, about, we look yeah. at it now, and you think, "God, I can't believe that even happened." But at the time, it was common. Mm-hmm. And, um, so you know, the world is in a different
0: place. In a, um, but we've still got a lot of work to do. And um, I mean, I've woke the, up this morning listening to reports from the United States around the Supreme Court this document leak about the repealing the abortion laws that was set up in the 1973, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, which means that each state can now have its own legislature to decide whether abortion is legal in their state. And they think
1: yeah. that's, that's what it will mean, of course, the me women just, the have step. To, just have to cross the you know, just go to the next state, won't they? I mean, it's mm. mad,
0: you know. Um, well, I saw that Amazon were now funding, expanded their healthcare provision to include supporting women who wanted to travel out of state for yeah, yeah. For, for treatment yeah i mean it's a it's, and the thing is i think that's a good example
1: because for me everybody's entitled to their opinion or their belief about whether a termination is justified or not what you don't have the right to do is to dictate that to to women they they for my money mm. they they have it's their choice you may or may not agree with it, but it's, I don't think it's for society to tell them what they have to do. You can believe it's right or wrong, but that's your belief. and that You can do that about anything. You may not like it. If you're homophobic, get on with it. Don't impose it on gay people. If you're transphobic, don't pillory trans people. Take your prejudice, keep it, deal with it. hmm I can't change someone's mind, but I'm not going to allow them to dictate who I am and how I feel. That's my choice.
0: Yeah. So when you were so, oh, I was gonna say growing up in the '80s, when you were maturing in the '80s, one of yes, the
1: better ways. I grew up a bit before that.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I grew up a bit before that. I, I think I left school in '81. So yeah, it was a, a bit before that. There was a, a, a ruling, wasn't there, where a. a I think it was a lord or an earl married um, a trans woman, and under traditional laws, and they they were married, yeah. and then it was a was it the divorce settlement or something that yeah, you know, tell they were you arguing. Happened.
1: Well, actually, you've just highlighted a really important case in the history of the of, of trans people. You're referring to April Ashley, mm. and um, who in, in, I don't know if you know this, but she sadly died not. That long ago, just a few weeks ago, and I met her. I, I interviewed her for a magazine. And April, back in the 1960s, married, um, Lord Arthur Corbett. And April was actually born the son of a Liverpool docker. And, um, so there was a class thing as well. And, um, and, and the marriage faltered. And she told me this story. And, um, oh, well, that was well documented in the press. And in the, in the 1960s, unbelievably, um, when you got divorced, it wasn't automatic and a party could defend it. So you had to prove something like infidelity or violence or, or separate, whatever. And, um, so when he sought, um, a divorce, she fought it. So it went to the, to the courts and Mr. Justice Ormerod ruled on it. And he, um, because what happened was his lawyers went for the fact, well, look, you know, this woman was born a male, so legally there's still a man and two men can't marry because, of course, we're way before same-sex marriage. So it's never a legal marriage, so we go for an annulment. And Mr Justice Ormrod ruled in his favour. I mean, there was a lot more to it than this. And he uttered the immortal words, nobody can change their chromosomal sex. So the die was cast because we have a law of precedent whereby trans people could never change their birth certificate. And, of course, that stayed the same up until the Gender Recognition Act in 2004 when it became law a year later where people could apply. And April, bless her, got her recognition all those years later. And um, so that's what you call a trailblazer, being dragged mm. through the courts and you can imagine a headline you can write your own derogatory headline and um, but the interesting thing is mr justice Ormrod did later say he regretted the comments he'd made because he realized the impact that it would have
0: so trans people weren't that common were they They were very well, living under the covers there was not yeah, a lot exactly. of visibility i mean visibility wasn't. very
1: public and april had the the benefit that she was a very glamorous-looking woman. I mean, she was a dancer in France at the Carousel Club, worked with you know, people like Couchinelle in these early trailblazers, all trans women in those days, who were changed. And, and the first one I was aware of was Christine Jorgensen, who was, um, uh, again, a very glamorous person and was one of Harry Benjamin's first patients, Harry Benjamin being the... Um, the clinician in America, as you probably know, who started in first person to sort of recognise really that this was a medical thing that needed to be helped. These were mm-hmm. not just crazy people who had it in their heads that they'd rather look different. They got to understand that they were very convinced and and um, and determined to make those changes. So she was fascinating, actually, when I met her because we... She was a bit of a duchess and uh I mean that in a nice way. She had the sort of blue rinse. I mean, she was in her eighties when I met her, I think, and um and I was granted an interview. I did an interview for a magazine. And I went in and she said, Um, Would you like something to drink? And it was um it was a heat wave. I just got off the underground. She was staying in a flat in King's Cross because she was living abroad, and she had a friend who'd let her have the flat while she was here. I think she was launching her book or something. And she said I said, "Oh, I'd love a glass of water," and she said, "Well, I suppose I can do that, but I do have some champagne." So anyway, we abolished, um, um, you know, a couple of bottles of champagne, and um, and she really opened up, and you know, she really was a trailblazer. I mean, I mean, every move she made was scrutinized in the press, and they weren't kind, you know. Hmm. So, so she really had to sort of, you know, put a chin in the air and say, "Screw you, I'm going to be me." Easy to say, Dare to very be nice. me. So, yeah. yeah. So, a real she made it easy for people like me. I couldn't have done it without people like her and people like Jan Morris, yeah. you know, who wrote Conundrum, yeah. who again died not that long ago I think a year or two back. It was a very well known and she overcame it because she was always defined as a travel writer, first and foremost, which is what she was. Mm. So she managed to say, look, I'm, you know, I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And um, these were extraordinary people. We take it for granted a bit now, but when we look back, and in the climate that there was in the country as well, they were extraordinarily brave, you know.
0: And you had a I, lot- mean, I I, was, I I, I grew up, It was my my early memories are in the early 70s, uh, born in 65. So... I saw these kind of stories in the in the periphery of my vision. Yeah, we were a very middle class, straight laced family. We didn't really. You know, my parents were teachers. There was no, there was no party or queerness about our, our our street, our family, or anything like that. So, but I was well aware of some of these stories. The sensationalised the, I caught glimpse of uh, on Open University when I happened to be off off home ill or something or. I was always very fascinated by um i suppose in those days you know transsexual sensational stories and it yeah uh, that all it just became something inside me just knew that this they were talking about me as well it just really yeah. really was they, they didn't necessarily inspi- they didn't inspire me to change but they 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 allowed me to start exploring who I was. And, and see myself through yeah. a slightly different lens.
1: Yeah, I remember reading about Christine Jorgensen and and, and getting that shiver down the back, and thinking, mm. "Oh my God, somebody like me didn't know there was anyone else." You know that kind of feeling. So um, yeah, so it's um, it's it's kind of like a two edge, two sided coin. The part of you goes, "Oh, what a relief!" And then the other part goes, "Oh God, what do I do now?" <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's just yeah. impossible, you know. I, I it took even 30 odd years days, me, I would never that yeah. I would ever do it you know just thought I would keep it under cover for my whole life I didn't think I would ever uh, do it but I did
0: Likewise I, yeah there was no pathway was there you had to be you had to be out there and yeah you know, bulletproof almost if you wanted to do it there's no sort of like well I'm being treated every day path being treated appallingly by clinicians and so on that made mm. it very
1: clear they didn't believe in it, but we're doing you a favour. And um, you know, we rude. rude, um, didn't answer, insulting, yeah, yeah.
0: It just awful. What was that BBC TV documentary? Over was, was a six episodes, wasn't there in the in the seventies or eighties about a a trans woman who they, they documented her surgery, and they she died yeah. a couple of years. back didn't she, she used to run a night Julia, club. It
1: was Julia Grant. Julia
0: Julia Grant. And,
1: yes. Um, yeah. And I sold. I saw. The, I saw it originally. And I saw the follow-up. Um, I mean, why anyone would do that, I don't know, but, but she did. But, you know, she had an extraordinarily hard time first time round, mm. And I think she never really um, got to be particularly happy from what I could make of it, for whatever reason, I don't know. Mm. But that was, yeah, hard. And, you know, a doctor telling you exactly what you had to do and what you couldn't do. I won't do this if you don't X. and you know, yeah. almost having to plead to get anything done.
0: Um, and, and this threshold of of belief and, uh, you know, you, you don't convince me you you can live as a woman until you convince me you live as a woman. And I'm not prepared to help you if I don't believe you can you can succeed in life. It's like... I it's don't a, a I, I mean,
1: I think there's a merit for people living in role, you know, before they do things that are mm. irreversible. I'm not saying that it should be a particular length of time on a certain other. But um, the thing is help, you know, you, you have to know that you're going to cope, I suppose. But, mm. but you know, they used to have these um, specified times. And I remember I was involved with helping rewrite standards of care a while back. And it used to be like you had to live in Rome for two years. But that was before you even got referred for surgeries. So we said, well, look, you know, the reality is you're talking about people waiting three and four years. If you make it at least 12 months before a referral, still going to be two years before anything happens. So that got shifted. Um And then, of course, we've got concerns about young people. And so it goes on. The whole thing's evolving as we speak. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, in some ways it's easier now, but I'm not sure that really there's no leak table.
0: And, and I think it's just different hmm so you you there were you um married children yeah realizing that you wanted to explore your inner, innermost gender identity and then you found that because of this precedent set by ashley that you couldn't you couldn't get married you, you had to have your marriage annulled if you wanted yeah. to uh transition yeah. and you you, you at that time of your life you you put your you got your placard out you got you put your t-shirt on and said i, I i'm going to do something about this
1: well yeah it was, i mean because i was denied the same rights as as other women you know for things like pensions mm. and benefits is is what it was about really so i fought it in the courts and um eventually um we won the case and and the crazy thing about it is it was a very short window because um you know, once we had, the, the the whole sort of take a step back, the whole premise was they didn't want to open the door to same sex marriage. So I could have been granted um, what I was applying for, but only if the marriage was annulled because they because it would have opened the door to same sex marriage. Well, that happened anyway. So it was a very short window um, and and it did open the floodgates for a few other people that were caught up in it in that same time frame for me, as me. But all I was ever arguing for was I wanted the same rights as everybody else. I wasn't asking for preferential treatment. And luckily, you know, I talked about having a few issues with my dad, but the one thing I did benefit from was I got his bloody-mindedness. And I thought, screw this, I'm not going to get divorced. Well, it was even worse at the time. He had to annul it. And I got two children, I said, oh, why am I going to do that? So I could just have gone quietly, and I thought, no, screw this, and I got a pro bono lawyer and we fought it. It took ten years but we um we got there in the end, and the joke is for what it costs the government to fight it could have paid me and a few others that it affected about twenty times over. you know, so there was a financial cost to the country by them not just doing it
0: um and yeah, you and, you and I mean, you told me the story before, so you're kind of underplaying it. You went all the way, all the way to the European Court of Justice. Yeah, what this, happened
1: yeah. was we got. Um, I mean, the, the wonderful part—I'll tell you the the, the 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 best thing about this—it was a, it was very humbling. I got a wonderful pro bono lawyer uh, named Kerry. I'll, I'll give her her name. By the time this finished, it was a QC. She was a junior barrister when it started. And then a couple of months or, or a few, about a year into it, 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 it was all getting heavier and, I, and people in the community knew, knew about it because I wasn't the first to challenge it. Other people had. And, um, and two solicitors came on board, Chris and Jackie. And, uh, they'd heard about it and said, look, we'd like to be involved because we, you know, you can't barrister on their own. So then when we got to the Court of Appeal and it was referred to the Supreme Court, We got this amazing QC, one of the top barristers in the land came on board. So I had four top lawyers working pro bono, not earning a penny. And the Supreme Court decided, I think, because it was going to create a precedent, because you get five judges, or I think it's sometimes seven. It's always an odd number for obvious reasons, so you can get a decision. But they referred it. I think they must have been split, and I'll never know. Whether the three was for or against, but they referred it to the European Court of Justice, and seventeen lordships heard the case, and um, and a year later came back, and they it was their opinion that was sought. So the Supreme Court actually made the ruling, and they found for us, so we'd won. So that all took I don't know over ten years. I was. I always remember. you remember Charles Dickens' book, Bleak House? <laughs> it's about chancery, and it, it it was like that. It took forever. But these these lawyers, I can't speak too highly of them. And do you know what? Mm. I tried to buy them lunch in Luxembourg. They wouldn't even let me buy them lunch. They insisted on buying mine. I mean, how amazing is that? So you know, my my lesson in life is when you do put your nose up above the parapet, good people often come on board. Hmm. But you've got to somehow find a way of stepping up before they do, because otherwise they don't know about you. And I will be forever honoured by the fact that these lawyers represent... You know, they didn't just do it for me. They felt it was an injustice and it affected other hmm. people. So it was amazing, you know, really. still can't believe it. I still pinch myself now that I got that So right.
0: the impact of this ruling was the creation of the gender recognition Act 2004 to allow... Well, Well, what it
1: was is we were competing with that because the Gender Recognition Act decreed that in order to get a gender recognition certificate, by then it was not annulment. They changed it to divorce. Otherwise, you couldn't get it. Then, of course, in 2010, when we had same-sex marriage, became irrelevant. Then then that didn't matter anymore. So there were a few of us caught in that window for about three or four years where we were affected by it. So it was only a handful of Mm. us, for goodness sake. You know, but they were determined not to create a precedent, the government, so they fought it tooth and nail. And I mean, I had to sit in courts over that ten year period, having every single derogatory term you can imagine used to describe me. You know? And um having to sit there quietly and be called a post operative this and a post operative that and you know, loads of inaccurate terms. But in the end we mm. got there. So um, so it was worth it. But would I have done it? Had I known it was going to take so long? Yeah, I probably would have done. <laughs> Just to make Dad proud. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, you can only do it. You can't do this sort of thing on your own. And that was, no. you know, and I repeat what I said earlier. That was the biggest lesson for me. And I say this to people all the time in different walks of life. You know, when you get up and you're trying to do something, good people see you and come on board, mm. if you let them. Can't do it on our own. None of us can do it on our own. care no. like, uh, whether you're we're speaking on the day after the World Championship snooker final, and Ronnie O'Sullivan won it for the seventh mm. time. He's got a coach. He's got his mindset coach. You know, he didn't do it on his own. Yes, he's very t- talented, and he works hard and spends... Hours at the practice table. I'm sure But he doesn't do it on his own. He's got people who help him. Hmm. But so what's know the future if you don't stand up?
0: What's the future for trans people? We're, 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 we've already said we're living in a time where there's a rise of gender criticality. If that's if that's a phrase, where there's we're being we're being kind of pitted against think of the women, think of the girls, think of think of same-sex rights and or sort of um, <clears throat> gender-based rights and erasure of what it means to be a woman. And that's being thrown at our, our feet, saying trans people are ruining what it means to be a woman. Well, you, and,
1: you know, and yeah. it's an interesting debate. And let me tell you, as somebody with two daughters and a granddaughter, I'm passionate about um, women's rights. It can't not be. But it gets conflated and they're two different, they're two different discussions, or they should be. You know, this notion that every trans woman is a potential, um, sex beast, you know, and, um, you know, same sex mm-hmm. toilets will, women will be attacked. I mean, it's absolute nonsense. But what is true is that women in society are subjected to violence, sexual violence, all of that is important and extremely relevant, and I would stand up and speak for any woman on that. But don't confuse it with the issue that all oh, trans women are suddenly going to be um, mad um, assaulters. You know, it's it's not true, and there've been instances. They always quote, "Oh, somebody got murdered, was in a, a prison or something." Right, and one person. And yes, that sort of thing needs to be changed if that if that happened. But let's not let take away from the argument that we need women to have equality, and it's, it's the women in sport thing as well with trans people in sport. And of course, we need an even playing field. Let's figure out how to do that rather than just screaming abuse at each other. You know, what do you yeah, say?
0: We, we all want fairness. We, all, yeah, we want fairness in society. California. We want fairness in sport. You remember Custer
1: Semenya, the South African athlete, who got banned in the end because it was unfair. Well, she's still a woman. Whatever people thought about her, I I don't know uh, the woman. Maybe there's an intersex thing going on with high testosterone levels. Well, how do we resolve that? That's the debate. How do we resolve Mm. that so that women can compete on an even playing field, if you excuse the putt? That's an important discussion. Let's have that Mm. discussion. And not confuse it with, you know, trans women trying to replace women and, you know, and, 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 and water their rights down. I don't want that. I don't want my daughters and my granddaughter to live lives where they feel threatened by violence, physical and sexual. And if my granddaughter, who's actually a really good gymnast, if she goes for that, I want her to have an equal playing field as mm. well. That's the discussion.
0: Yeah, you know, not. I all. completely agree. I I want everybody to have fair a fair opportunity to compete yeah. in their chosen sport or whatever it is yeah. in life, and, and without it being at the detriment of somebody else.
1: Yeah, and so if there is a trans woman who's full of testosterone and wins an event by, you know hundred meters by thirty yards or something ridiculous because they've got that for, then we need to look at that um but it doesn't mean that you sort of make this blanket ban and say well that can't go how do we measure it you
0: know
1: but, yeah and, uh, and I think yes. the
0: impact is more likely to be on on cis women not women who aren't trans who are suddenly too tall too too big and, I, and there's some yeah. photographs of this uh some of these boxes and some of these uh weightlifters are competing and they actually picked the wrong person and said that's the trans person well actually no they weren't the trans person
1: yeah they
0: were cis they were cis and so that what happens is you end up picking on people yeah, exactly. you think you're trying to protect
1: but also somebody said well they're going to reach a point where you're going to need um you're going to need a document to prove that you're a woman to go to a toilet but if you think about it that means that all women have got to carry one mm. how do you distinguish yeah You can't, because if you're, if you've got a doubt about somebody, they've got to have a piece of paper, haven't they? And it might be somebody who, uh, has always had, um, a female anatomy was, you know, with a birth certificate that says female. You're going to expect them to carry a document. Nobody thinks it through. You know, we come up with all these solutions that are totally unworkable. But the real issue is, how do we, of equality in society for women. That's the issue. I agree. That people get confused with. Well, this person shouldn't be able to go in that toilet. Who the hell cares? Um, really. Yes. And it's, a very, it's a very
0: American-British problem. You, know, you look over over the world, most toilets are holes in the floor or single cubicles yeah. in cafes. You, know, you go to Spain on yeah. holiday. There are no gender toilets. They're they're just toilets. I'm not saying
1: none of these things are issues, but the issue is about, well, how do we do that as opposed Mm -hmm. to this thing about, well, you can't allow trans women to go in this space or that space Um, because because the solutions that people come up with are totally unworkable anyway.
0: Yeah, and and they end um, up disadvantaging women uh, at large generally. Yeah. Yeah. Completely. I
1: repeat what I said. How can I I got – I mean, a family – I have a female partner, I've got two daughters and a granddaughter. I mean, for God's sake, you know, I don't want them living in a world where they feel unsafe.
0: No, no, and I completely agree. And, and on that note, we've been chatting away now for, well, an hour plus. So thank you so much. Um, lots of things there. And it's been an honour catching up with you and just talking about you know, your your ECJ Journey all those years ago, and some of the groundbreaking yeah. work you did to to benefit many, many people. Um, largely, maybe at the time you were, you were in the public eye, but now you've kind of just taking your t-shirt off and just getting on with life, being you again. And yeah, uh, yeah I really, really admire and respect that. So, how do people get in, in contact with you if they want to um, uh, well, take advantage I'm, of your yeah. coaching or psychotherapy services? Yeah,
1: well, Shelley Bridgman. I'm on LinkedIn. It's my main sort of social media platform. And my website is shellybridgman.com. And my psychotherapy site is actually michellebridgman.com. But um, mostly I do coaching these days.
0: Um, Yeah. And Bridgman is
1: B-R-I-D-G-M-A-N. I I had illiterate ancestors. They left the E out
0: somewhere along the line. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, thank you so much. So, so, yeah, if you're you're listening in, you'd like to get in touch – Drop Shelley a LinkedIn message. Check out her, her websites, um, and maybe do some research on on some of the work she did all those years ago. The ten years that she f- well battled battled the legal system with those uh, yeah barristers and and, uh, and solicitors that are there to help her. So no, thank you so much, thank and a huge you. thank you to you, the listeners, for tuning in, for listening, getting this far. Please do subscribe if you're not already uh, for future episodes of the Inclusion Bytes podcast, B-I-T-E-S. Tell your friends, tell your colleagues, please share this. I've also a number of other exciting guests lined up over the next few weeks and months that I'm sure you'll be equally inspired by. So if you'd like, also, if you'd like to be a guest, then please let me know. I'd also welcome any suggestions or feedback on how we can improve the show to joe.lockwood at uk. Finally, my name is Joanne Lockwood. It's been an absolute pleasure to host this podcast for you today. Catch you next time. Bye.